for 50 years, the wealthy, the billionaires have understood that the way you hijack a democracy is by purposefully breaking social solidarity. Hello and welcome to Who Belongs, a podcast from the ONB Institute at UC Berkeley. I'm your host, Irfan Maradi. These are quite unusual times, and as such, today's program is a little different too. In this episode, we'll hear about the Washington, D.C. riots that took the lives of five people this past week, the race and class politics behind it all, and how social solidarity can move us forward. To make sense of all this, we'll be joined by Director of ONB John A. Powell and Ian Haney-Lopez, Professor of Law and author of Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America. But instead of our usual interview format, we'll hear a recording of their conversation from a live Q&A titled Storming the Capitol, Trumpism's Last Stand, moderated by Emna Almadom, an analyst here at the Institute. This panel took place on January the 8th and is part of our growing hashtag AskOBI series. Here was their conversation. Hello, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. Happy New Year. Thank you for being here. So I'll just say some words to, to, to kind of ground us in what we've all seen in the past couple of, of days and, of course, the culmination of, honestly, what's been going on, on for years, of course. So like all of you, we've had, um, I'm sure, you know, late nights, very distracted days, trying to get back into work while we experience and process some, some really historic high moments and historic low moments um, already this, this year. So in Georgia, where I'm, where I'm actually from and based currently, uh, we did what some thought was completely unimag- unimaginable, right? We had visionaries like Stacey Abrams, Latasha Brown, and Say Ufo that led us to organize within our own communities and work with, within coalitions all across the state um, and outside with others to fight for governing power that has long really been held, especially in Georgia, but across the country um, in the hands of a select few. We gathered as best as possible in the conditions of this, of this pandemic and the unfortunate um, economic circumstances that many of us are under and you know, had car rallies, we had food drives to get food in the hands and on the tables of those who are struggling um, and who are trying to, to, to cry out to our political leaders to listen. Um, it was really an incredible feat in the face of, you know, rampant voter suppression that we've been able to, to talk about and uncover, especially over the past couple of years about Georgia. And of course, while we're in this continued um, and heightening once in a century pandemic. And that work paid off on Tuesday as a Georgia and I was beaming for the couple of hours that we got to, to actually have that, that celebration. Um, and of course, though, that joy did get quickly disrupted, although I still maintain and, and I'm, I'm proud of my, my state, but of course that different movement that has steadily been gaining ground reared its ugly head. Um, on Wednesday, Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building in DC, demanding that Congress halt the certification of the presidential election results. While it was abrupt and disorienting following the Georgia runoff election, the storming of the Capitol was born from a very steady escalation, as we know of Trump's rhetoric over the years, including blatantly false claims of electoral fraud, calls for state and citizen violence, and years of online disinformation and radicalization. And it's all in service of a white supremacist agenda that can be traced, right? There's a through line through decades of American history, 
both within our constructed borders and beyond them. Um, uh, but despite knowing all of this, I, I really can't get the images of this week out of my head. Uh, we, a Confederate flag being carried through the Capitol building, a noose hanging from a wooden beam, um, the massive crowd unmasked and, and furious. And of course, we also saw the, the shocking level of casualness from law enforcement, who in contrast have brought out armored tanks at Moms for Housing's actions in Oakland, tear gas and rubber bullets for protesters in Minneapolis, and in Atlanta just this week, a mass arrest of protesters in solidarity, who were protesting in solidarity with Jacob Blake, while my white militia who actually stormed our state capitol building um, went completely untouched. And there's so much also at play that was maybe not seen in the images from Wednesday, thinking of the resourcing and the history and the role of political elites that might not have been physically present. And I know our speakers will help us dive into these complexities of, of what happened and, and what was at play um, this week. So I've laid out two events for us, the historic winds um, of communities in Georgia and a shocking insurrection by white supremacists in the Capitol that offer two very different paths for our country. And Trump, um, unsurprisingly, has positioned himself squarely at the center of our historic moment, even with just two, two more weeks remaining in his presidency. So our speakers are going to help us make sense of this moment. Of course, front of mind for many of us is, you know, what is to be done about Trump? Um, but also, as we referenced in the title, thinking broader, what is Trumpism? What is the, the lasting effect um, of what's happened? What does Wednesday, Wednesday's attack mean about this country's, this country's institutions? and our yet fresh project of multiracial democracy. So Professor Powell and Professor Haney Lopez, welcome again. Um, thank you so much for joining us for the discussion. I'm going to be turning it over to the two of you for opening remarks for about five to 10 minutes each. And then we'll get to hear, like I mentioned, from our audience. We'll enter into a Q&A session. Um, so just a question to kick us off. Can you, can you explain what Trumpism is as you reflect on what we've seen this week? And how do race, class, and white supremacy function through Trumpism? So I'll turn it first to Professor Powell. Well, thank you for the question and for being here and the chance to be in a, uh, a good friend and colleagues, Ian's company again. First of all, these are really shocking times. And uh, uh, as I actually mentioned, I'm part of the book uh, that was done by some colleagues at Berkeley and beyond, uh, edited by uh, uh, Osagi on Trumpism as, and his discontent. So um, it's a couple hundred pages of de defining Trumpism and trying to uh, look at its implications. And I would uh, refer the listeners to that uh, to that book. You can actually get it online uh, for free uh, from the um, Othering and Belonging Institute. But uh, Trumpism really, uh, Trumpism really reflects a whole number of things coming together um, and being amplified by Trump himself. Uh, as, you, as you know, the country from its very founding has been founded on contradictions that it's been tussling with. Uh, so when some people try to figure out how did Trump happen, when did it happen, where did we go back to, uh, we can go back to uh, even pre-Declaration um, of Independence, that the country in terms of um, the economic system uh, built on, frankly, stolen land and slave labor. Uh, and, and then, uh, and I'm sure Ian will talk about this, um, 
an effort to separate uh, what would become the white working class from people of color in service of the elites. And that's taken on different forms. It is not just an idea. Uh, and I'm writing an article and thinking about this now, uh, uh, about the ontological foundation of our discontent. There's an um, article called Ontological Threat. And the author makes the argument that we actually confuse physical threats and ontological threats. They're not the same. And so one of the things that's sort of associated with a certain expression of whiteness is that it gives ontological grounding, even beyond just material grounding to certain populations. And the author ar argues that when people sometimes doing things irrational or looking, looking irrational, for example, when people say white people are voting against their self-interest, I oftentimes correct that. Um, uh, this article I mentioned, but also W.B. Du Bois is very clear that there's a psychological uh, payoff in this country for being white. So you might not get uh, house or health care, but you get something. Um, and a good friend of mine, David Rodiger, wrote a book following up on W.B. Du Bois called Wages of Whiteness. Uh, he's, and he basically talks about what do you get, uh, not necessarily materially, although it might be that, but what do you get in terms of uh, trading in uh, your humanity, in a sense, your, your shared destiny uh, for whiteness? Uh, and in a sense, you could say that payoff, and I've said this to David, you need to write a new book called The Declining Wages of Whiteness. You know, uh, the things associated with whiteness is actually, uh, and I don't mean white people, I want to be very clear, I'm not talking about white people. Oftentimes we talk about structural racism or structural racialization, but we actually practice it almost exclusively through interpersonal relationships. They're not the same. Uh, so you can literally have people of color who embrace the ideology of white supremacy, uh, white dominance, um, and, and people who are phenotypically white, not. So we really need to look at both the structure and not just the people. Uh, but what's happening in a sense is what was associated with that construction of white dominance and white supremacy is actually being challenged and it should be challenged, um, not just for people of color, but for all people. Uh, and um, one of the, the questions that people would often ask is, why would a white person give up their privilege? What do they get in return? And the reality is, they, if we do it right, they get a lot, starting with their humanity. But they also might get health care. They also may get decent housing. They also might get a response to COVID. They also may get an economic system that works. So it's not that uh, even though you got something in terms of the ideology of whiteness, especially in relationship to people of color and especially in relationship to blacks, you didn't get that much in terms of uh, what you needed to really flourish as a human being, nor in terms of the elites. Uh, whites were not the elites. The elites were oftentimes white, but that's not what whiteness is. Um, so I think as, as that dimin uh, diminution of whiteness started to become, take on more and more expression, partially expressed through just the change in demographics, partially expressed through the changing position of the United States and the world. Uh, in a sense, it took a hard form in terms of racial politics. Uh, the racial other and the immigrant other became the serious threat. So it's, it's almost funny, it's almost like as, as whites started losing economic status, it was translated into racial hostility. Uh, and uh, and that's um, President Obama 
talks about that some uh, in his new book. Um, but I, I'll give two expressions and I'll, I'll wind up and turn it over to Ian. We all now know about the Southern strategy, uh, early reflected by Goldwater, uh, of actually saying part of white dominance was the right to actually be over and dominate people of color, especially blacks. So it's like, you may not have much, but you have more than them. You're not them. Uh, and part of your sense of who you are, not just what you have, is the right to be over blacks. In the 1930s, many jobs basically said, even if they were terrible jobs, they would say that a, a supervisor could not be black because you couldn't have a black over a white. Uh, the supervisor's job may not be a good job either, but at least he, and it usually was he, had it over blacks and maybe over women. Um, so when that, that started changing, then that sense of uh, psychological benefit to whiteness start to go away. Uh, and a couple of things we, we could have done and we should do, but and that is, what's the alternative? What are you getting? What are whites getting? And what are people of color getting? Uh, well, Goldwater ran on right, white resentments as a result of the early civil rights movement, uh, basically saying, uh, making the civil rights movement, despite King's effort to say otherwise, making it a zero-sum game. That if people of color win, it means whites have to lose. Um, and Goldwater didn't do very well, but the Republican Party turned that into an art form with Reagan and others. And so the Republican Party became really a party of white resentment. And it sort of nurtured that. So that resentment by itself is like diffuse water. You need a hose, you need something to channel it to make it powerful. And the Republican Party became that hose. Um, and if, it's, if the Republican Party became the host, then Trump became a laser. He really channeled that resentment. Uh, and so it's not, people would say there's nothing new. It is something new. Uh, he channeled that resentment so much that both the elites and many of the rank and file whites, if you will, uh, who organized around that identity, was willing to actually turn over the country. First, we cozied up to Russia. The, the, almost the most important thing became that resentment. Uh, and you know, in the 1960s and 70s, and even, even under Reagan, it was unimaginable that we'd have this sort of uh, close relationship with Russia in favor of white nationalism. Uh, and so I'll just stop by saying the conditions that created that in terms of white resentment, in terms of a sense of loss for the uh, people who organized their identity around white dominance, uh, those conditions are not gone. So Trump may leave the White House relatively peaceful after his failed coup, uh, but the conditions that created that are still present, and we have to address that. We have to actually create a country where uh, there's a greater benefit for being part of something. Uh, uh, there's a greater benefit to being in a multiracial, multiethnic, multinational coalition where there are real resources than to hold on to this declining white resentment and white dominance. Thank you, Professor Powell. Let me know if my mic works. I'm having problems with audio. It looks like <laughs> you can hear me, but I can't hear you. Not this is basically the way professors love to run their course. So <laughs> I'll just go with this. Hopefully my audio will return. Otherwise, people will just have to text me questions. Um, but I'm going to respond to this conversation about 
you know, the sort of juxtaposition of the rioters um, storming the Capitol and also the incredible victory of uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Georgia. Let me start with the rioters and with this idea of Trumpism. I think Trumpism is um, uh, a, a potent name for something that really has been 50 years in the making immediately, but then as, as John suggested, um, uh, something that really is deeply connected to the, the formation of our society um, with roots that go all the way back to colonialism and the relationship between colonialism as an economic system and colonialism as dependent upon a racist ideology to justify the expropriation of land for some, the enslavement of others, right? Um, but really, I really want to focus on like the last 50 years and, and, and to say, look, starting in the 1960s, in response to the success of the New Deal, not, I'll get to the civil rights movement in a second, but in response to the success of the New Deal, what we saw was a country that through the New Deal, through the long New Deal, came to the understanding that government and the economy should work for the vast majority of Americans. And this is a, a, a radical understanding, a, a, a break, a departure from the idea that government and the economy should primarily work for the very rich, um, um, where the very rich were themselves a, a racialized group and also a gendered group, um, uh, whites and men as the ones who are propertied, who are authorized culturally to operate in the marketplace and authorized politically and culturally uh, to engage in self-rule. New Deal really challenged that, um, uh, especially in terms of the, the sort of uh, a, a much broader conception of the middle class. But the fundamental idea there, government should work for most people. The, the New Deal from the 1930s understood that most people had to include African-Americans. And there was sort of over those three decades through the 1960s, slow, steady progress towards a greater and greater inclusion of African-Americans and other people of color within this, this broad mobilization, uh, this, this sort of broad multiracial coalition. The Republican Party the, the, the political elites, um, one faction of the Republican Party comes to understand that if the country is to return to a system in which government primarily works for the rich, it will not do so based upon direct appeals to class dynamics. That is, it was, it was simply, you know, there's no way in which the Republican Party or somebody like Barry Goldwater could stand up and say, you know, the rich are really different. They're better. They deserve to rule. We should support the rich. We should support programs that are good for the very rich. Um, and we just know better what society should be like. And we should understand that that had been a very common sort of um intellectual ideological framework for decades, for centuries. We still see remnants of it now. Um, anybody who reads Ayn Rand, for example, Ayn Rand isn't just about individualism. It's about the rich being special individuals who should rule society and all the rest of us being leeches, leeches and moochers, right? So that ideology is out there, but it's not, there's no way to win power 
if 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 you're if you're naked about that sense that the rich are a better class of people and and deserve to structure society for their own interests. So instead, what happens in the 1960s is the rich begin to say, actually, we're with the people. But it's a racialized sense of the people. It's a sense of we're going to stand with whites against African-Americans, against uh, against others who are promoting racial uh, racial equality and racial integration. There was a sense by Barry Goldwater that that would work, that that would be a Southern strategy, that it would only work in the South. But then Ronald Reagan used it to win election in 1966 in California. Richard Nixon tries it in 68 and really leans into it in 72. And, and people realize this is, this is national. This is going to work across the country. And incrementally, slowly, um, you see this transmogrification of the Republican Party in which each generation is more aggressive in terms of relying on racial demagoguery. Um, and at the same time, constantly under threat to being primaried and replaced by yet even more extreme figures. So you can go from uh, the, the moderate Richard Nixon to the, the Reagan, you know, and his sort of hard hats. And then you go to the Reagan Democrats and then the Gingrich Revolution. And then you get to the Tea Party and then you get to Trumpism. And now even Trumpism, it turns out, is too moderate. Uh, you, you know, um, uh, you look at people like Brian Kemp, who was a Trumpist when he was elected, too moderate, being now challenged by Trump himself, but also by voters who are supporting QAnon candidates. That is, the Republican Party has promoted a lie for 50 years that says whites are under threat of being replaced in this country by people of color. Um, stand with white folks. And it's not just the Republican Party. They've been backed by the billionaire class uh, who have, in addition, funded in a, a propaganda machinery, whether it's Breitbart or, or, or Fox News or, frankly, a lot of the think tanks like American Enterprise or Heritage that also promote a combination of racial resentment and economic policies that favor rule by the rich. This is the sort of informational cultural milieu that Trump has weaponized and that stormed the Capitol and that's on view. And I want to just say one thing about policing, because this is really important. A lot of people are saying, well, look at the disparity in the policing, the way the police respond to Black Lives Matter versus the way the police respond to the sort of, the, the sort of white nationalist Trumpist supporters. That's not a function simply of uh, a sort of a cultural racism or, or uh, within the police forces themselves. Instead, that reflects the way in which policing has been constructed for the last 50 years by politicians who are promoting a racist rhetoric that says, fear dangerous people of color, um, uh, control them, um, um, protect civilized society read white folks from these dangerous, menacing people of color. And it can be African-Americans as thugs. It can be Latinos as illegal aliens. It can be Muslims as terrorists. But that rhetoric of we need the police to protect the civilized against the savage, that's who the police have been asked to become by our political leaders. And so that's what they've become. So if there's a demonstration to protest the brutal killing of a black person. 
the police understand that their role is to treat black people and to treat people protesting for racial equality as a threat to civilization. Whereas when there's a protest to say, we want to protest uh, democratic victories, um, we want to protest threats to, uh, to, to, uh, to white dominance, the police understand that they've been asked to take a hands-off approach to white nationalism, to white resentment, to white rage. It's not just a cultural thing. It's who's the leadership? Who's the po- who, are the, who are these public safety unions? Um, uh, uh, who, who is their main client? Their main client are politicians like Donald Trump, um, um, politicians who promote uh, stories of racial fear and racial threat. Okay. What then, where then is the hope? I think that there's a tremendous amount of hope that we should take from the work of Stacey Abrams and the election of um, uh, Ossoff and Warnock, not just because Democrats won in Georgia, but because of how they won. For the last 50 years, as Republicans have been mobilizing race as a class weapon, Democrats have been largely stymied. Democrats have largely concluded that they needed to back away from civil rights, then they needed to back away from the labor movement, that their main constituency was going to be uh, white suburbs, white moderates, Wall Street, um, and coastal elites. And a lot of the Democratic Party is still there. And for that Democratic Party, the route to power in a place like Georgia would have been to run a white moderate sensitive to Southern racial sensibilities Um, and tepid in terms of economic policies. But Stacey Abrams' insight was different. Stacey Abrams' insight was you can mobilize a great swath of Georgians, starting with, but not limited to, communities of color, people who haven't seen a future for themselves in terms of political participation, but who can come to understand that participating politically in a multiracial coalition is the way to win power for all Georgians, white, black, and brown. That was Stacey Abrams' vision. And I think that, in a way, Warnock and Ossoff, because they are progressive, but also, and this is really important, because they linked their fates, they ran together. They didn't run separate campaigns. They ran often literally hand in hand. They embodied the idea, and it's an idea that John mentioned, that All of us, including whites, are better off rejecting racial fear as a way of organizing our lives and instead embracing cross-racial solidarity to make sure that we have a government that actually works for most people rather than for the 1%. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you can can hear us now. But that that was was incredible to to hear both of you kind of go through... um, just history, historically, how what led us up to this moment, um, and in particular, these comments of you know how race has been mobilized across across different political factions, um, and and this new this new beginning that we can that we were kind of moving towards. So I think now we're going to actually move on to some some questions from the audience, and I think this one that we're about to to pop up on really transitions well from what both of you were talking about of. You know, there's it's more than just the individuals who who are actually on the ground conducting the the riots, insurrection, um, whatever we want to call it. But there's 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 definitely a discussion that needs to be had around who those people are and how they're going to be personified by the media and by 
um, just by everyone. But in particular, this question is great because it's, it's helping us think about, you know, what was at the background, right? Who, who was, who um, inspired what happened? So this is from Efua Ando. Thank you so much for your question. How do we restore the faith in our process of, of holding not just those who rioted accountable, but also those who incited and fomented this violence? On a similar vein, there's a question here from, from Nina Cesaro. Is Trump liable for inciting a riot on Capitol Hill? And how can the police force that were on duty be accountable for this act of terrorism? Feel free for either, either of you to take that question, but kind of thinking about what, is, what are the, the pathways to accountability? And I think also in this last question, it's raising a debate that I've definitely seen um, around what do we what do we call what happened, right? Thinking about the language of, of terrorism or insurrection. Um, so yeah, I'll turn it I'll turn it over to whoever wants to, to answer. So let me let me start. Um, uh, I think that it's very important that we clearly identify the culprits here um, in terms of Donald Trump, in terms of the Republican Party, uh, frankly, in terms of the propaganda machinery that stands behind Trump and behind the Republican Party. Look, in some ways, it's a mistake to blame the, the Republican Party because they're trapped too. They've unleashed a monster that they can't control. Every one of those Republican political officials is liable to be primaried in the, the next, you know, the next time they're up for election by somebody who's even more willing than they are to pander to racist demagoguery of the sort that is being promoted 24-7 by, by Breitbart, by Fox News, by Sean Hannity, by Rush Limbaugh, by Laura Ingram. Um, by QAnon, right? So, so the Republican Party, and, and and also, the Republican Party has very little institutional strength compared to the power of the billionaires who fund them and who fund the right wing think tanks. They're trapped to those folks. I don't say that to excuse them. You see, someone like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, they know exactly what they're doing, and. They have made the decision that in exchange for power for themselves, they are willing to be racist demagogues who shatter our democracy. They should be condemned as such. But that doesn't mean that they themselves actually have the power to stop this. Right? The, 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 the locus of power here is more with the billionaires, the think tanks and the right wing propaganda machinery with the Republicans being a mouthpiece that are themselves sort of enmeshed in and trapped by the system. And I say all this because I, I, I want to convey the sense that the rioters, yes, arrest and prosecute, but don't mistake the rioters as the, as the, the core of the problem and don't condemn Trump supporters um, in blanket terms. Um, you know, I recently traveled across the, across the Southwest and the rural Southwest in, from, from California on, when I say the rural Southwest, I mean, once I left the Bay Area, there's nothing but Trump signs out there. The culture is a culture of Fox News, 
It's, it's a culture of the Republican Party. It's a culture of white evangelical churches. It, it, right there, there's this complete propaganda envelope that, in which people are uh, operating that constantly reinforces the idea of racial threat, racial conflict, um, of, uh, of a looming race war. Some people are able to reject that. Some people are able to to see through it. Most are not. Yes, prosecute the rioters, but let's be very clear. The the main responsibility for this is the Republican Party, the the cynical leaders like Donald Trump himself, a a deeply, deeply cynical, um, manipulative, power-hungry individual, enabled by other deeply cynical, manipulative, power-hungry elected officials, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, those folks, Um, but operating within a milieu of a propaganda system funded and promoted um, by billionaires and ultimately beholden to those billionaires doing the work of those billionaires, massive tax cuts, deregulation, stripping of environmental protections, keeping open uh, the economy, um, even though um, 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 uh, this is a tremendous threat to the lives and well-being of workers, ensuring that corporations will not be liable for exposing their workers to COVID. That's the government we have now. That's where the main blame lies. Sorry, let me just try and make this more pithy. We should condemn racism, not primarily in terms of a problem of white people, but primarily as a weapon of the rich against all the rest of us that promotes white racism as a strategy to achieve rule by the rich. Condemn white racism, identifying the main problem as the strategy of the rich to foment racism rather than suggesting that the main problem is somehow white people in general. Thank you for that, Professor Heine. Heine Lopez, we'll pass it to you, Professor Powell as well, that the same, the same thought here around, you know, what does accountability look like? How are you, how are you thinking through that question? Well, you know, I, I agree with what Ian said. First of all, we're still in the middle of this. So we're still processing it and, and, um, but to just add some context, so we just had an election. Uh, Trump got the second largest number of popular votes in U.S. history, somewhere around 72 million. Uh, now, the good news is Biden got the largest number, uh, somewhere around 80 plus million. Um, so that's a lot of people. So part of the way understand this, the country is deeply, deeply divided. Um, you, know, you can call it almost a tie. Uh, and that division is not going to go away quickly. That, that division is actually curated and nurtured and shaped. It's not just people come to those decisions. So some people are working to try to uh, amp up resentment, hatred, fear, as Ian said, for political strategies. But we also remember we have 82 million who have rejected that. Let's not forget that. And as you sort of talked about it, we, we just, we have Georgia. Georgia is huge. It's the old South. Uh, and first of all, I want to just hats off to 
uh, some of my uh, colleagues at the Uppingham Belong Institute that work tirelessly, both in the general election, but also on this election in terms of uh, education, in terms of getting out the vote, working with most of the major uh, groups in Georgia, in an environment where people said, it can't happen. You're not gonna win one, let alone two Senate seats. It's a long shot. And I, I've been saying to people, when people say to me, yeah, it's a long shot, I'd say, yeah, but we have Steph Curry on our team and Stacey Abrams, we make long shots. But I just hats off to them, hats off to the people in Georgia, hats off to the uh, majority of Americans who, who stood up. Now there's some complexity, I just wanna just take a minute to tease out a little bit. Ian made the point that uh, the democratic apparatus, the official apparatus was slow to the game in terms of really investing in uh, black organizing and black voters. And that was Stacey's genius of saying the majority of Democratic voters in Georgia are black, the majority. Uh, and I've talked to uh, some Democratic folks and they said, but they're not reliable. We can't count on them. So who are you gonna count on, Trump voters? Uh, and, and Stacey, without denigrating white voters, said we gotta activate this group. And she did that and, and she registered them, she changed laws, she, she was out there and the Democrats eventually came online. There was a whole lot of money coming in that. So part of this, making sure everybody participate, everybody has a stake in the game. Um, and then you, what do we call just, just happened in Washington? So uh, one of the people on my staff, uh, Josh actually sent something out this morning uh, with, to see what Europe is calling it. The European intelligence community is calling it. What they're calling it is a coup not a demonstration, not a riot. This was an attempted coup. And they, they look at all, the evidence is still coming in. And I, I like to be somewhat measured and uh, not hyperbolic, but this looks like a coup. And the way you understand that is not through the people storming the door, but by the police response. Why were they absent? Not simply, why didn't they beat up the rioters, the, 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 uh, uh, the mob, the way they did when people were demonstrating for racial equality. Uh, you know, I don't wanna suggest that police should be beating people more, they should be beating people less, but they weren't there. And there were a number of efforts, uh, offers from the National Guard, from the Pentagon. Do you want help? No, we don't need help. We got this. Uh, and so the intelligence community who says, look, we train with Americans. We know what the Americans police community is like. We're not looking at this from a distance. There's protocol. None of that protocol was followed. That decision is not made by the people uh, on the ground. That decision is made fairly high up. And so whether it was explicit or tacit, there was an agreement not to defend, not to protect. Uh, and it's amazing, right? Because this is the halls of our government. You know, you can almost understand them, given our history, not protecting black people and not protecting gays and not protecting, but this is not protecting the vice president, not protecting Congress, not protecting the Senate. Who has enough power to say, we're not gonna protect a huge power source in our democracy? Someone very high up. So this was very, this should be understood, I think. There's a good reason to believe this was an attempted coup. 
uh, and Trump played a very significant role in it. This is the first time since 1814 that the Capitol has been breached. Since 1814, the last group that did it was the British in the War of 1812. Uh, and uh, the, the, the police apparatus could have stopped that. And there was an offer to stop it, and the offer was denied. Why? Um, so there's something going on. This is deeper than just uh, angry white people on the street uh, coming, to a, coming to a rally. There's something more at this, uh, especially when you add to the point that this was not a secret. Everybody knew. It was broadcast online. We're going to go to the Capitol and get wild. People, I'm carrying my guns. It wasn't a secret. You didn't need spies to figure out what they were going to do, and yet we didn't respond. Um, so I think why well, I say we're still in the middle of this, and and I, I I have I'm a mixed minds about should Trump be impeached. One thing that's interesting: the impeachment process, if it starts, doesn't necessarily stop on January 20th. It can go on afterwards. Um, that's a whole another question. Uh, but I do worry. That you know, because we keep thinking that Trump's going to hit rock bottom. You know, there's nothing else he can do, and then he does something else. Uh, so I think he knows no bounds. Uh, so would he start the attack, Iraq, Iran? Would he? I mean, I think we have to worry about that as a country. Uh, in order for us to get forward, go forward, and particularly for Biden, uh, uh, we need to get Trump at least. Um, cabin him in or get him out of there. So with less than two weeks left, I was, I, normally I would say it's a waste of time, but in two weeks, Trump can do so much damage. Um, and we know that many of those 72 million people will continue to support him. The, the country is, is, and I think this is part of what Ian was suggesting, the country is actually teetering and possibly broken at a structural level. It's not just, you know, changing people, stopping people being racist. It's not just I do it, but it's not just implicit bias training. There's something more fundamentally wrong. And there's something, the opportunity is more fundamentally progressive. So Georgia represents a possible future. The coup represents a discredited past. So mm -hmm. both of those questions are on the table at the same time. And the country is split down the middle. So the question is, how do we actually animate that future uh, and reject that past. That's the challenge before us. And we can't do it just by focusing on a narrow concept of, uh, um, you know, bad acting, white racist, Trump supporter. It's more insidious than that. That was, that was great to kind of go through and hear um, your both of your takes on this, right? Thinking about what what does what does accountability actually look like? How does how do we imagine that um, the what is the continuation going to look like? Right, like in, at the beginning of this or the title, we're saying, you know, is this the end of Trumpism? And I think you all, you're both obviously <laughs> alluding to and making clear that we, we should expect and understand the the continuation of what we're seeing, even in in the the final finally having conceded yesterday. He, he said, you know, this is only the beginning. And I think that that ties so strongly to what you both are saying around, we are kind of teetering. There's this divide between us and that there, there's something calling people onto this other side. We have to understand what it is that's calling them. 
to that side. And so uh, one of the questions that's come up here, and we'll have it up on the screen in a second, I think is a great transition to think about you know, what, what else is there to offer? What is the alternative that can be offered up? And how do we, how do you make that the more appealing, the more inclusive, um, and the more genuine option, right? Thinking about, you know, what, what are people really going through? Um, and what are the different options on the table, right? We, we're, we're talking right now in a binary because that's how our system is set up, right? That you have to vote and there's, there's other options, right? There's there's people who are looking at, you know, even a move away from electoral politics and, you know, what are the difference, the different options um, within our communities? Um, and not to, to vouch for either, but to think about the fact that, you know, we can't continue in this way, obviously. I think that's the, the big the big takeaway for me is that there, there has to be a change in what direction and, and in what way. So um, with the username Ryo Nitz, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but says it very plain, so I'm just gonna read it out. Given that the Democratic Party has leaned heavily on being the less crappy party for decades, what do you think will happen if they don't make bold progressive moves in the next few years? And I think that that ties really well to what both of you were talking around, you know, that it's not just about the, the candidates, it's about the political apparatus, the, the infrastructure that those like Leader Abrams and others devoted time to, to building out and, you know, specifically thinking about um, kind of the the work of Reverend Warnock, the fact that he came from the pulpit of MLK's church, right? This is deep, 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 deep work and, and connections to to people and to to our experiences. Um, so I'll turn it over to you all. What what do they need to do? How how do they make something of, of this moment? So I let me let me start by saying I'm not sure this was a coup. Um, um, but in some ways it might be more dangerous than a coup. So um, you know, an element of the coup often involves coups often involves some element of the the police or the security state, and I think that there was a failure on the part of the of the security state here. But I think the failure on the part of the security state is one that's long standing. The police, the FBI, the intelligence community have been ordered by political leaders to disregard threats of white nationalist violence. That's been longstanding. Um, there's a, there's a, a political legitimation of violence from the racial right that has been longstanding. And I think that that's what happened here too. The Capitol Hill police were essentially um, understood that they were prohibited from viewing Trump supporters as dangerous and threatening, even when they were bragging about their lead pipes and their automatic weapons, right? And so I think that, but, okay, so, it's, but if it's not quite a coup, what is it? I think it reflects something that is sort of long-term more dangerous, and that is that for 50 years, the, the, the wealthy, the billionaires have understood that the way you hijack a democracy is by purposefully breaking social solidarity. And so that's what they've been doing. They've been purposefully stoking racial fear, racial conflict, racial division. And it's not just race. They've been, you know, their culture wars are also about gender, about gender identity, sexual identity, about disability, about religion. 
But at every turn, you see the billionaires and the ideological machinery, the propaganda machinery they control, stoking social division, until we've gotten to a point when a near majority of Americans feel they, were, they would be better off circling the wagons to protect their community, even at the cost of sacrificing democracy. And I think we see that in the immediate response to the riots and in the invasion of the Capitol, when you still had a hundred plus Republican representatives saying, we're going to vote in a way that endorses the idea that the election was stolen. You see that when almost half of Republicans in a quick poll say they support the invasion of the Capitol. What that means is nearly half of Americans have been convinced that in order to protect themselves, they need to sacrifice democracy. It's th this is the slide away from democracy. This is the slide towards authoritarianism that in some ways is slower and harder to stop than a coup, which is, you know, okay, here's the coup, here are the plotters, here's the military intervention. It, you know, coups often succeed or fail within a day or two. We're in the midst of this deep slide. Um, and now to flip it around in terms of solutions, focus not on progressive policies, focus on a progressive message of social solidarity. That's the most important thing that can be done. Democrats, but also unions and foundations, um, uh, higher education, K through 12, the Department of Education, we need to recommit to the idea that democracy only works in a context of felt social solidarity. We need to promote that solidarity. That will require progressive policies, because you can't have social solidarity when people are dying of a pandemic, when people can't get health care, when people can't get shelter, when they can't get food. You can't have social solidarity when the organs of government are turned toward violence against particular communities, be they immigrant communities or African-American communities. We need the progressive policies that take care of people, but they have to be explained and they have to be promoted within a context of a proactive effort to create social solidarity. The right has actively destroyed social solidarity for 50 years. The, the, the only thing that the Democrats can do now that can change the trajectory of the country is to actively promote social solidarity. And, and I say change the trajectory of the country because I have to be clear on the one hand, I'm optimistic that we're Democrats to embrace social solidarity in, in, the, in the vein of this incredible transformation in Georgia. That, would, that could potentially herald a, a new day for the country. But I'm worried. And I'm worried that at the national level, the Democrats remain committed to a sort of a moderation and inc incrementalism and collaboration with the cooperation with the Republicans sort of vision in which they will not promote social solidarity. And if they don't, then we will continue to teeter or we will fall into something that is much closer to civil war um, as people remain convinced that their safety and security depends on circling the walls and taking up arms against their neighbors. Mr. Powell, I'll turn it, turn it to you to respond to that, that same question around what what are the paths forward? What do what did the Democrats need to be investing in and thinking of? Well, maybe not surprisingly, I agree with what much of Ian said. 
Although I think his, uh, I would disagree on the question of a coup. I think it was a coup, a good, good chance it was a coup. And I don't think a coup happens in one day. In fact, uh, when we look at the history of coups, they usually have a long tail. And then an event happens. Uh, and we focus on the event, but it's not something that just happens overnight. Uh, and again, I would just turn our attention to people who study coups around the world. And that's what they're calling this. And this was not just uh, a culmination from my perspective of uh, white solidarity against uh, people of color, because this was the halls of Congress. At the time that they were trying to ratify and certify the election, and they're, they're being um, instigated by the president and his minions. And some of his minions are calling for violence. And at the same time, the police are not just showing up. It's not that they were, they were just, quote unquote, uh, outmanned. They decided not to be present, not to be present. Uh, and, and you have, and it's not a police apparatus, because you have the Department of Defense and the Pentagon saying, do you need help? We are willing to help you. We, this is what we do. And they're saying no. This, so this is extremely unusual. Uh, but anyway, the, 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 the jury's set out. But I think it's actually, and to, to, to your larger point, though, I don't think it's over. It's, it didn't start this week, and it's not over this week. When Trump was running in 2016, the question was put to him, if you lose, will you accept the other party? Trump refused to say he would. He's been saying for over four years that I will not accept any outcome where I'm not the winner. Uh, so he's been saying this for a long time. Uh, and he's been stoking this for his people. If I lose, it's because someone cheated. The only way I can lose is, I, is, is the system is rigged and, and we cheated and we cannot afford that. Uh, and how do we know we cheated? One, I lost, but two, too many black people voted. Right after he's elected president, first thing you do, I want a commission on why so many black people voted, not why they didn't vote. And 24 states engaged in some kind of voter suppression with no evidence of voter fraud. It's like, we gotta get black people, Latinos, young people off the voting roll. Um, so that's, so I agree with what you, most of what you said, you know, I think that, I think we, we approach the issue of cool slightly differently. Uh, I also want to go back to, um, Michael Omi. Uh, some of you have read Michael and Howard Wynette wrote a book called Racial Formation. That's a classic now. And they, they assert that until the sixties, the United States was what they call a racial dictatorship. Uh, not really a democracy, a racial dictatorship where one race dictated the lives and circumstances of the other race. In the civil rights movement, in a sense, and maybe starting with the New Deal, but the New Deal didn't go far enough because it, it left much of that in place, that the disturbance of that racial dictatorship is what really unleashed this new expression of white resentment. Um, and uh, so in a sense, it's not surprising that, uh, I mean, think about this. There was no civil, there was no Confederate flag uh, at the Capitol uh, during the Civil War. People are showing up with a Confederate flag. They're showing up with the losing side of the, the most uh, deadly war in the United States, saying this is what we stand for. Uh, 
Now, how to fix it? Again, I, I agree with much of what Ian said, but I want to add two other things. Georgia is really instructive. Uh, there's a good article out about uh, black people voting Democratic. The black, black people tend to be the most uh, um, robust and consistent supporters of Democrats. And the article was written by a guy who was a captain, I think, in the army who's black. And he said, why is that? Blacks are not necessarily automatically progressive. Uh, we Blacks have a range. Uh, Biden got it wrong. It's not just Latinos that are diverse. Blacks are diverse too. So why do we keep voting Democratic? We didn't used to vote Republican. Uh, and what he's saying is that because Blacks are actually voting against this racial dictatorship, that once you take that off, then Blacks are going to be distributed like any other group across the political spectrum. So I guess I want to just tweak a little bit. It's, how we talk about progressive, because, uh, and then you sort of suggested that we talk in binaries. I think we have to stop talking in binaries. I think binaries make it hard to have the kind of social solidarity that Ian is talking about. Uh, and we see this a lot, not just on the right, but on the left. So if you think about the discussion about policing right now in the country, it's actually used oftentimes to split not just whites and people of color, it's used to split the black community itself. We have to have, have a space where we don't label someone a progressive or conservative and say, if you're conservative, you're out. I'm a progressive. And what happened in Georgia, uh, there was a question, were those two Democratic candidates progressive or not? And so to some extent, the issue was irrelevant. What they did, they talked in plain language. They talked in ways that people could talk to, could, could engage. They talked in terms of social solidarity. So I, I, so I want to encourage us to be careful of what we call breaking language which language which we create our own small we and everybody else is on the outside. Or we exercise no humility because we think we have it all figured out. I'm not saying I don't have values, but we have to be willing to listen. We have to be willing to engage with people. We have to be willing to what, do, do something we call bridge um, and, and really hear people's suffering and pain, regardless to who they are. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them, uh, but that's the kind of social solidarity that then gets translated into programs and into policies that I think is the way forward. Uh, and so I'll end by just saying this, on the left here in the Bay Area, we're very much willing to say, uh, we need to have a coalition of people of color, which I agree with more than a coalition, but it has to not just be people of color. We have to actually extend ourselves to white people, extend ourselves to, to Christians, extend ourselves to groups who don't make up our own little community. Uh, and, and then not, not only find common ground, create common ground, but also to hold on to each other's humanity. Uh, and will we then win? Whatever winning means, I don't know. But if we don't do that, we'll definitely lose. Thank you both for, I'm gonna be wrapping us up here in a moment, but just everything that you've gone through and helping us again, see the thread of history throughout all of these, these questions and, and things that we're grappling with right now and um, thinking specifically around this question of social solidarity and what it takes to achieve. I think it's still something that I'm trying to stew in, right? Of what does that mean in my in my day-to-day -day life? Uh, what does that mean in you know, my interpersonal relationships and also in the type of political or organizing or intellectual work that I participate in, right? Like how do I how do I carry that out? Um, in my daily life. And I think that's a question that many in the audience may may have. So I, I'll leave us with this this last bit to, to wrap us up in a few minutes of if you could kind of give us one thing, one one action to consider, 
as we think about how do we actually carry that out, that that goal towards social solidarity um, in our own lives. And, you know, it could be look at this, you know, some book that you've read or someone that you really admire or, you know, some sort of source of information that you would point us to or, or an action, but kind of how can you help ground us in, in our own lives? How do we actually carry that through? So, so for, for my part, you know, I've written a, a, a book, Dog Was Politics, Analyzing Racism as a Weapon of the Rich. I wrote a book called Merge Left, um, talking about what solidarity looks like when we, when we really sort of pivot. Um, but what I really want to emphasize is another resource that I've put up on online. It's called RaceClassAcademy.com, RaceClassAcademy.com. Com. And it's a series of 12 very short videos to try and break down all of these ideas and build them one on top of the other. And what is the core contribution of RaceClassAcademy.com? This is what I'd really urge people to do. And it, and it really requires sitting with it and reflecting on it, mulling it over, trying it out. But it's a paradigm change in how we talk about racism. Um, what is the paradigm change? Almost everybody now thinks about racism strictly in terms of white supremacy or white over non-white hierarchy. I think we need to understand racism as primarily a weapon of the rich that seeks advantage by fueling white over non-white hierarchy. That is, don't just stop with a white over non-white hierarchy. Look behind it. Who's promoting it? Who's funding it? Who benefits foremost from it and it's it's this is a huge ask because on the one level you can you can kind of get it but on another it has very dim, different very dramatic implications for how we create solidarity um, and the most dramatic implication i think is this we create social social solidarity not simply out of values though those are important we create social solidarity out of pragmatic necessity the Wealthy few, the greedy rich, the billionaire class are strategically trying to shatter social solidarity. And if we want to protect our own family of whatever race, whatever race we might be, if we want to protect our family, we must pragmatically build social solidarity. And I think just to bring it back to Georgia and, and um, uh, Reverend Warnock, this is Martin Luther King late in the civil rights movement with the Poor People's Campaign where he says, Oh, we're not going to have racial justice unless we also fight consumerism, unless we also fight militarism, unless we also fight imperialism, unless we build a broad multiracial movement of working families. Precisely because these systems of, of oppression and extraction and power are interwoven. Um, we must have a solidarity, and that solidarity has to be understood first and foremost as a pragmatic response from the real threat all of us face, and not just all of us, the real threat our planet faces, which is a greedy few running the marketplace, running society, running you know, the transnational trade in the interest of their pocketbooks and in disregard of the health and welfare and dignity and environmental survivability uh, of, of the planet. Thank you. Thank you. I'll turn it over to Professor Powell, Powell to, to wrap us up here. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, thank, thank both of you. So this is a wonderful question. It's been a great hour. It's gone really fast for me at least. 
Um, we are called the Othering and Belonging Institute. Uh, we focus mainly in the United States, but we also have a significant footprint in Europe, uh, some little work in uh, uh, Latin America, increasingly looking at Asia. Uh, we share the planet with the planet. We are part of the planet. So we believe that we all belong. So how do we think about a world where not one group dominates another group, not a zero sum game, but where everybody belongs? What does that mean, not just in terms of a psychological, emotional space, but what does that mean in terms of policy and practice? And how do we have, and I'm not anti-corporate, but I believe corporations and economies to serve people, not the other way around. Uh, so at the Institute, we do a lot of work. In fact, I would say the majority of our work try to lean into this question. Um, I'll just throw out one thing that'll be a little bit maybe hard to grasp in the, in the few minutes we have. We've shifted from a narrow focus of equity, just looking at disparities between people, to targeting universalism, to set universal goals for every group. Uh, and the reason that's important, I'm as chair of Population Health in Southeast Michigan for 10 years. And one of the goals there and across the country is to close the gap between um, white men committing suicide and black men committing suicide. And the good news is that gap has substantially closed, but not because black men are killing themselves less, but because white men are killing themselves more. Uh, and people say, well, that's not exactly what we're talking about. So what were we talking about? I, we set our goals only in relationship to group that was considered the more favored group. I was on a call earlier this morning about closing the racial wealth gap. But when people say that, they're not talking about closing the gap between you know, Bill Gates and the rest of us. They're talking about, again, a, a more favored group, white working class, and Blacks and Latinos and Native populations. And that gap is important. But I would say even the white group don't have what they need. Uh, and so when we just sort of focus on scarce resources and put pit people against each other, it creates an atmosphere of breaking. And targeting universalism can say, this is our aspirational goal for all of us but we recognize we're not situated the same, so we need different strategies to get there. That becomes a, a way of talking about bridging. Um, and then of course, there is a moral component. And you ask for, you know, so uh, some of the work we've done, but also you think of people like uh, Reverend Barber. Uh, um, we are inextricably connected. And as, as Baldwin says, some of, my, some of my countrymen find that unfair. I don't want to be connected to those people. We are connected. Uh, we should be building bridges and not walls. Um, and one of the questions that came in the, ch in the chat, I'll just answer, was uh, the, the term uh, Ubuntu, uh, which is a South African word. And, and the translation is not simple, but it, said, it means I am because you are, that we are connected. How do I live that? Uh, in terms of the way we think about taxes, in terms of where we think about uh, the, 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 the pandemic. And we see huge disparities. That is a concern because that's saying those people don't count. But we say every life, every person counts. Uh, and so anyway, I think that a lot of people are grabbing for that and looking for that. We need leadership. We need, um, and the jury's out. But that to me is, a, is our work um, and that's our goal. of this episode of Who Belongs, we'd like to thank John A. Powell and Ian Haney Lopez for their insights, as well as Emna Almadome for moderating this discussion. 
We'd also like to plug a couple books that are essential for these times. Haney Lopez is the author of Merge Left, a thought-provoking book on race and class politics, and additionally, the Othering and Belonging Institute recently published Trumpism and Its Discontents, edited by Cluster Chair and Professor of Bioethics, Osagi K. Obasaki. This book is a collection of urgent essays about our political landscape in the time of Trump and is available for free on our website. We'll put a transcript of this conversation and links to related resources at belonging.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. This has been Irfan Marathi. Thank you for listening.